Ticket to a Murder by Michael Bowker. Nearly a thousand leads had turned up nothing. Then the detective got an unexpected call. Donna Ream glanced at the clock on the wall of the convenience store where she worked in Eugene, Oregon. It was 10.30pm on Sunday, April 10, 1994. Only half an hour more and I can close, she thought. As she wiped down the counter, Reem overheard her workmate, Fran Wall, talking to her husband on the public phone in an alcove. The two women, both 28 years old, were friends and neighbours in a nearby housing estate. I'll be home soon, Wall told her husband. I love you. She hung up and went round the corner to the rear of the alcove, where the bathroom, stockroom and walk-in cool room were located. Just then, Reem saw a young man outside the entrance. He was dressed in black, his long blonde hair pulled back in a ponytail. He was about 175 centimetres tall and had a babyish face riddled with acne. Reem remembered him from earlier that day when he'd come in to buy cigarettes. She had asked for proof of age and his identification card showed he was born in June 1975. The man entered the shop, setting off the electronic door chimes. As Reem continued working, she noticed that the shop's roll of scratch lottery tickets in a plexiglass case by the register was almost gone. She reminded herself that tomorrow she needed to scan the barcodes on a new roll of tickets into the computer to activate them for sale. What she didn't know was that another clerk had already done so. A new roll of 200 tickets was wedged between the register and the case. Reem looked up and noticed a second young man with a thin face and long nose at the back of the shop. His long brown hair drooped round his face. He reminded her of a grotesque comic book character. Suddenly she was startled by a growl coming from her right. She spun round to find a tall bearded man looming over her. He held a long steel bar in his fist and was making snarling sounds. We're being robbed, thought Reem, backing up in fear. The blonde kid darted into the stockroom. Please don't let him near Fran in the cooler. Open the cash register, the bearded man thundered. Reem punched the cash register and the drawer sprang open. The man grabbed the cash and handed it and the pipe to yet a fourth man who had suddenly appeared. Watch her, the big man ordered, then went round the corner towards the cooler. Reem stared at the assailant who guarded her. He was little more than a boy. Please take the money and go, she pleaded. I have four children at home. Please don't hurt me. The boy ignored her and kept the pipe raised over her head. Reem felt weak and tremulous. What are they doing in the alcove, she wondered. A few minutes later, the bearded man and blonde man returned. The latter had blood spattered across his face, shirt and pants. My God, Reem thought fearfully. What did they do to Fran? Come on, the blonde man ordered, pointing to the alcove. We're not going to hurt you. They're going to kill me, Reem thought, panicking. She grabbed a heavy beverage trolley and pushed it at the men. The bearded man blocked it with his legs and shoved her hard against the stockroom wall. Hit her, the blonde man yelled. Can't you even kill a woman? Reem screamed and shrank back against the wall as the bearded man advanced, the bar in his fist raised high. She threw her arms above her head as the first blow crashed down. He swung the pipe repeatedly, splintering the bones in her arms and hands. Despite the incredible pain, Reem kept her arms raised, protecting her head. If I black out, I'll never see my children again, she thought. 
She tried to fight back, but then a savage blow knocked her to the floor. She curled up as the men kicked and hit her. Get the knife, the bearded man growled. A moment later, he stabbed Reem in the arm, but she was in so much pain she didn't realise it. I killed mine, why can't you kill yours, the blonde man taunted. Now Reem felt new despair. These animals killed Fran, she thought. Suddenly, the blows ceased. Reem peered out between her arms and saw the men looking away, distracted. This is my only chance, Reem thought. Pulling herself into a crouch, she lunged towards the toilet almost two metres away. Got to get in and lock the door, she thought frantically. She reached the toilet, slammed the door and grabbed for the lock. But the bearded man burst through the door, shoving her against the back wall. Why don't you die, bitch, he snarled, jamming the pipe into her mouth. Her air came in gasps, and she fought with all her strength. Suddenly, the bearded man turned his head as though listening. It was the front door chimes, a customer. He stepped outside the toilet and looked towards the front of the shop. Reem slammed the door and locked it. Then she collapsed, expecting the killers to come back. But there was no sound. Finally, she unlatched the door and peeked out. Seeing no one, she ran to a nearby house and pounded on the door. A woman opened it. They've killed Fran, Reem sobbed. Please help me. At 11.05pm, Ron Roberts, 32, a rookie homicide detective, was notified of the murder. Roberts rang his partner, Pat Ryan, 42, a 20-year police department veteran. Five minutes later, the two detectives were on their way to the convenience store. Homicide Detective Sergeant Rick Gilliam met them there. I'm putting the two of you in charge of this case, he said, speaking directly to Roberts. Roberts felt his stomach tighten. He had been a beat policeman for six years, but this was his first lead role in a homicide case. He had been promoted over more experienced officers to the homicide office, and he knew people would be looking over his shoulder. Donna Reem, the injured woman, gave us good descriptions of the four assailants, Gilliam said. It's a miracle she's still alive. The other woman wasn't so lucky. He motioned to the cool room. You'd better prepare yourselves. They opened the door to the cool room, then stopped. Fran Wall lay dead on the floor, her skull brutally crushed. Ryan said, we've got to catch these guys. If they can do this to a woman who had no dispute with them, they won't think twice about killing again. It took 400 surgical staples to close Reem's scalp wounds and several hours of surgery to begin repairing the damage to her arms, now in casts up to her shoulders. She was discharged after eight days in hospital, but her husband, Rick, noted that his once strong and confident wife was now terrified. Those men are still out there and I'm the only person who can identify them, she sobbed. Eager to help the police, Reem agreed to an interview with Roberts on the day she came home from hospital. He arrived with a mug file of 100 photos. Would you see if you recognise any of these men, he asked. Although he didn't let on, Roberts was worried about the case. It's been eight days, we should have caught the killers by now, he thought. Most murders that were solved, he knew, were unravelled within 72 hours. Reem had already described the assailants and every other detail she could remember, including the June 1975 birth date on the blonde man's ID card. Roberts was optimistic that she could recognise the men if their pictures were in the mug files. Reem eagerly reached for the photos, but several minutes later felt a keen disappointment. They aren't in there, she said crying. 
You have to find the men who did this. Robert's heart went out to her. We'll find them, he reassured Reem, hoping he could keep his promise. Two months later, nearly a thousand leads had been logged and followed up, but Roberts and Ryan still had nothing. The motive for Wall's murder continued to baffle everyone. The shop owners said only $50 had been stolen from the cash register. Then, on July 27, Roberts got a call from a representative of the State Lottery Commission. I think we have something that may interest you, he said. A few minutes later, Roberts excitedly told the news to Ryan. That morning, the convenience store auditor had found that 200 scratch lottery tickets were missing. It was the roll that had been squeezed between the register and the plexiglass case. The auditor called the Lottery Commission to see if the tickets had been scanned into the state's lottery computer and activated for sale. They had on the day of Wall's murder. Some of the tickets were winners, Roberts told Ryan. Somebody cashed them in just a month ago, right here in town. It was the first fresh lead they'd had in weeks. Within moments, Roberts had called two of the three shops where the tickets had been cashed. Both times, he hung up disappointed. The clerks told him they didn't keep tickets if the amounts were less than $50. Taking a deep breath, he called the last shop on his list. We do save some of the winning tickets as part of our record-keeping process, the manager said. Hold on, I'll see if we have the tickets with those numbers on them. Roberts grew tense as the long moment slipped by. Finally, the manager came back on. I've got them right here. Are any of them signed? asked Roberts. He knew it was a long shot because clerks don't usually get winning tickets of less than $50 signed. None of the tickets stolen from the shop was worth more than $10. Yes, one is, the manager said. We had a new clerk who asked everybody to sign the tickets. A Michael Haywood signed this one. Robert's pulse raced. Could this be the break I've been hoping for? Two hours later, Robert sat in front of his computer, completely discouraged. A fingerprint expert had told him no latents could be lifted from that type of paper. Worse, Roberts had run a check on the name Michael Haywood and found no one matched the descriptions of any of the four assailants. That night, Roberts slept fitfully, finally waking at 5.30am. There's something I'm not getting here, he thought. I'm close to these guys, I can feel it. Then it came to him. From his years patrolling the streets, he knew that when criminals were put on the spot to identify themselves, they often lied by using a derivative of their real name. Roberts logged onto his computer. Three hours later, he typed in the name Michael Hayward and stared at the screen. It listed a Michael James Hayward who was once arrested for malicious mischief in a convenience store. He was described as blonde, 175 centimetres tall and 65 kilos. His birth date was in June 1975, the same date Reem had seen on the suspect's ID. Hayward's address was close to the shop where the winning lottery ticket had been redeemed. Roberts was excited, but knew there was one last critical step. Reem had to positively identify Hayward. Roberts obtained Hayward's photograph from state records and mixed it in with a stack of mugshots. Slowly, Reem examined the photos. She had looked at more than 600 over the past five months. Suddenly, her face grew animated. This is the man who killed Fran, she cried. It was Hayward. Roberts and Ryan decided not to arrest Hayward immediately, however. They had to find the three other men, and only Hayward could lead police to them. During the next three weeks, Hayward was followed and his telephone tapped. 
Soon, officers identified three of Hayward's friends who matched Reem's descriptions. Detectives secretly photographed them, and Roberts mixed their photos in with other mug files and took them to Reem's house. Reem accurately picked out Hayward's three friends and turned to Roberts, her eyes brimming with tears. I knew you would keep your promise, she said, hugging him. On September 3, 1994, police arrested 19-year-old Joel Brock, the long-faced man. The following day, Roberts and Ryan, backed by the local SWAT team, arrested the other three men while they were camping south of the city. The suspects were taken to separate interview rooms. Roberts questioned Daniel Robago, 16, who had stood watch over Reem while Wall was killed. Robago said he and the other assailants were Satanists, whose goal that night was to kill somebody. He said they were plotting more murders when they were arrested. Hayward admitted he didn't know Fran Wall and added with a shrug, If I had to do it over again, I would not change anything. Her life or any other person's life means nothing to me. Like Hayward, Jason Brumwell, 19, the bearded man, seemed unconcerned at being apprehended. He said they robbed the shop to get drug money. Roberts and Ryan felt an adrenaline rush when they took the suspects to the city jail and were given the victory sign by other officers. The exhausted detectives walked out of the jailhouse into the afternoon sun, stopped for a moment and grinned at each other. There was no need for words. Brumwell was sentenced to life imprisonment plus 20 years without parole. Robago and Brock pleaded guilty to murder, assault and robbery and were given 11 and 12-year sentences respectively. Hayward was convicted of the aggravated murder of Wall and was sentenced to death. Roberts's work was recognised by the police department. In July 1996, he was promoted to sergeant. For more RD Talks, visit readersdigest.com.au Brought to you by Readers Digest Australia 